New year, huh? Oh my gosh, are we ready for this? Election year and everything else going on? Oh, wow. Yeah. God grant us patience, I think. It's probably the best prayer we can do going into 2024. But it is kind of exciting to cross that imaginary line into another uh, cycle of the calendar and all of that. Last week, we were, to, uh, last week we were here. It was uh, New Year's Eve. And we were talking about the craziness of the world and uh, how it's full of crazy contradictions. I played you a song, which I don't normally do, called Crazy World. And we talked about actually three songs that dealt with the, the contradictions and the paradox of, uh, you know, the second song was Cruel, Crazy, Beautiful World. And the fact that how do we live abundantly in a world of contradiction? That was the question. Jesus said... I came to bring life and bring it abundantly. And how do we do that in a world that is so contradictory, so contrary to what we think it should be, contrary to everything in us morally and emotionally in every other way? And we talked about the fact that as long as we're trying to resolve those contradictions, as long as we're trying to resolve the paradox that we see in the world around us, we don't and we can't. Learn to love the world as it is. We will forever be looking to make it into what we expect it to be, what we think it should be, rather than accepting our moments as they present. And now, even as we work for change, this is not a recipe for passivity. This is not a recipe to just say, okay, I'm checking out, just leave the world the way it is, there's nothing I can do to change it. No, no, we still show up, we still suit up every single day, we still work for change. But the difference is, is that if we can start walking down Jesus' path, we can start seeing the task that lies within the task. Because whatever we're doing on the outside, whatever we're trying to change in terms of our circumstances, whatever cause that we're working for, and we're working very hard, we have to realize that what we're working for is really not to change the basic premise of the world as it is, the basic structure of the world as it is. But we're trying to alleviate the suffering that we find right in front of us. We're trying to lift the boat of this person who's right in front of us. It becomes very micro in the work that we do. Even if it's a policy-level position, even if it's, it's macro in its nature, where the change actually occurs that we can control an outcome for, possibly, or at least set the opportunity for an outcome, a positive outcome to occur, it's always going to be in the micro. It's always going to be with individuals that we help to alleviate that suffering. And and thereby, in that exchange, in whatever takes place between us, to experience the oneness and the connection that is always the task within the task. Whatever we're doing, when you go to work or whatever you're doing in your family, whether you're, you're planting something in the garden, cleaning house, the task within the task is always the oneness and the connection that will occur when you make this beautiful space, when you change something for the better, when you bring home a paycheck, you are creating the opportunity for oneness and connection. That's always the task within the task. For us to be able to see that makes all the difference in the world. And Jesus told us this. We're not changing the world as it is. He said, you're always going to have the poor with you. And that was in response to Judas, who tasked Mary, who wasted a bottle of very expensive perfume all over Jesus' feet. He said, hey, what are you doing here? We could take that money and give it to the poor. You're always going to have the poor with you. That system, the world as it is, remains has remained for 2,000 years since Jesus said those words, and it was that way for 2,000 years before Jesus and will be 2,000 years after us. It is the world. Can we accept that? Can we become convinced that the world is as it actually should be, as it actually must be, if we are to fulfill what we're here to fulfill as human beings? You know that we only grow through adversity, right? We know intrinsically that the difficult things that we have been through not only grow us up and open us up and make us more compassionate people, they also give us credibility in the eyes of others. Those who have suffered most, when they speak, we listen because they have survived those difficult times, whether it's the death of a child or whatever may happen. 
those difficult times are when we grow, when we fulfill our purpose, when we can be one and connected even in those circumstances. We have started to learn what Jesus is trying to tell us, that the oneness is not in the circumstances. The oneness comes from within and moves outward into our circumstances. If the world wasn't designed the way it was, would we be able to learn those lessons? If we were really able to create that utopia, that ideal environment, would learning and growing cease? These are questions that you need to answer. I'm giving you kind of my bias here. It's showing through. But think about it. The world is designed perfectly to give us the paradox and the mystery that we need. And we keep trying to erase that. In our fear, we want the certainty. But it's like we said last week. Why do you have a spoiler alert for a movie? Because if you know the end of it, it's not worth watching anymore. If you really were able to resolve the conflicts of life, the contradictions and the paradox of life, if you really knew what the end was, it would be unlivable. What would be the purpose of getting up in the morning and doing anything we do if we actually knew that? See, we are, as human beings, the human condition is, is that we're caught between our intolerance of uncertainty you know, it's interesting that psychologists will say that all human neuroses come from an intolerance of uncertainty. If we can't deal with the uncertainties of life, we create all sorts of phobias, all sorts of neuroses. It's amazing. So we're caught between this intolerance of uncertainty and a world that is specifically d designed to make certainty impossible. You get that? We are intolerant of uncertainty, and we're living in a world designed to make certainty impossible. Talk about the ultimate catch-22, right? But that's what's going on. And the, the, the world, in, in terms of quantum mechanics, is telling us that that's exactly true. For a hundred years now, in the 1920s, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle has been known to us. We know that at the smallest particles of this universe, there is absolute uncertainty. We can't know the position, direction, velocity of any quantum particle all at the same time. It's impossible. The world is built on particles that are uncertain. There is uncertainty at the core. There's a reason for that, I believe. We're never going to be able to live with the abundance that Jesus is talking about. We'll never be able to live with shalom, or that great Zulu word we learned last week, ayeye, which means joy and celebration. Same thing as shalom, the greatest abundance of health and wealth and presence and all of that. We're not going to be able to live that way abundantly if we truly believe that the world is wrong, that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. Because for any of us who believe that, how do we respond? Doesn't it make you angry when you watch the news? Doesn't it make you resentful? Doesn't it make you bitter over time? Doesn't it cause you to start doing some obsessive thinking and work because you're constantly banging your head against the way the world is and you will continue to see the world as a place of scarcity, not abundance? But if we can become convinced that the world is perfectly designed with all the necessary tension and all the unresolvable paradox that it has, then we can begin to enjoy the scary ride of life. We can do those outer tasks, always aware of the inner task, the connection, the oneness that brings meaning, brings purpose, brings identity to everything that we do, and then we can start to see the world as abundant, even in the midst of the difficulties. Now, at the same time, certainty is comforting, isn't it? That's why we want it. And I'm not saying that we don't try to create some. We can, we can do that. We can do that in certain ways. In fact, think about for a second, think about a child in his or her home. If that family has certain repeatable and, and reliable rituals in place, you know, maybe mealtimes are always at the same time. Bedtime is always at the same time. You know, there's school. There's, there's events that always happen at the same time. That's really comforting to the child to have that certainty 
that structure around him and her makes all the difference to a, a child's development. I remember reading the um, foreword to um, Brendan Manning's book, Ruthless Trust. It was by Richard Foster. And he talks about that every Saturday morning he made pancakes for his kids. You know, he made pancakes. And there was always great fun and squeals and laughter with the flour and the this and the that and all the things going. And as far as his kids were concerned, you know, dad was a never-ending pancake machine. Every Saturday there was going to be pancakes. He said, you know, I never saw them really stuffing pancakes into their back pocket because maybe dad wasn't going to have pancakes next Saturday. He was just a pancake machine. That ritual, seeing pancakes every Saturday, made them certain that dad was going to be there for them. And it created that kind of comfort. That's what we're talking about here. Can we start to create some kind of comfort? Um, When I was a kid, our Sunday morning ritual was always the same. We grew up Catholic, and so every morning got up, got all dressed up. You know, back in the 60s, you dressed up for church. And uh, my sister had her, looked like one of those, you know, princess dresses on with the black patent leather and the white leggings. And I had my thing, whatever it happened to be. And we would get up and we would go to Mass. And after Mass, we always went to Paris Restaurant. I, I remember the name of it to this day. It was down a block and across the street from the church on Garvey Boulevard in Monterey Park. And it was the same. And I, mem- I can remember standing outside. Sometimes you had to wait in line, and they had those rotisserie chickens going. And I would just stand there, you know, looking up at those. Rot- I can remember all of that stuff. I can still see us sitting at those tables. It was this routine, this ritual that meant so much. And then, of course, there was a time when, not that I enjoyed the Mass so much as a child, but let's be honest with that. It wasn't, it wasn't that, you know. And, in fact, back then, the, Latin, the Mass was still in Latin. And the, and the priest still faced away from you. you know, it wasn't until later that Vatican II kicked in and then the priest and the altar turned around and they started speaking in English. But you know, even that I was thinking about, it's probably better the other way. Not Latin, maybe. English was good. But when the priest was facing away, we were all facing the same direction. We were all facing God. You know, I was thinking about that. When the priest turned around, now he's presenting to us and it changed the nature of the relationship of the liturgy, I think. But I digress, and you get that for free. (laughs) The whole point of this story is that that was very comforting to me, but somewhere in my late middle school, my parents stopped going to Mass. I don't know why. We just stopped going. And, of course, they stopped going. I stopped going. You know, I wasn't going to go by myself. And then through uh, high school, I didn't really go to Mass, but out of high school, I joined a monastery. I I wanted to to serve as a a religious. Uh, Didn't last very long. Came back and... I noticed that in my 20s, you know, just living and doing what I did, every Saturday afternoon, I would be hit with the worst depression. It would just descend on me. And I wasn't aware of it until you know, several years down the road. And it's like, yeah, it's always Sunday afternoon. That's when I feel it the worst. And I couldn't figure out why. There was no reason to. You know, Sundays were good. Sundays were off. You know, you had the weekend. But this depression... When I started going to church again in my early 30s, guess what? The depression went away. It was this somatic memory, I think, in me of that ritual of going to Mass and and having that routine that I was missing and lost. And when I put it back in place, that comfort was there. See, this is how we can create some certainties in life. It's through the rituals that we do. You know, the church does the same thing, creates rituals for us, right? These cyclical events. I mean, what are we talking about here as we're talking about Christmas and Easter and Epiphany that was uh, just a couple of days ago? But we're talking about a liturgical calendar. And if you've ever seen a liturgical calendar, you know, usually it's set up like a, like a pie chart, right? And you got two major holidays. you got Christmas and Easter. So that's where the Christers come from, right? The ones who only show up on Christmas and Easter. But basically, you've got those two main holidays, and you have what happens before and what happens after. Each one has slices of the pie, and everything in between is called ordinary time. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't stuff going on there, but it doesn't connect to one of those two major holidays. Now, Christmas is always December 25th, but that always changes the day of the week. So you come four Sundays before and you start Advent. There is a preparation for Easter and a preparation for Christmas. For Christmas, it's Advent. For Easter, it's Lent. You know, for, for Christmas, Advent is four Sundays before Lent. Kind of moves around a little bit. 
And then you have Christmas, and then you have the 12 days of Christmas, which is called Christmas Tide, and then you have Epiphany, and then you have Epiphany Tide, and that ends on, December, on February 2nd with Candlemas. And then you have Ordinary Time, just ordinary. But then Easter, well, Easter, that's a real movable feast. Easter is always the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Go figure that one out. So it's always moving around. But 40 days before that, you have Ash Wednesday and you start Lent. And then after that, you have 50 days until Pentecost. And then Easter tide is over. So that's the, and it just cycles through, repeats over and over again. You can see it. You can feel it. You know with the changing of the seasons that you're going to be changing this. And it gives great comfort because you know what's coming, right? Maybe when you're in ordinary time, you don't. But this gives us that bit of comfort. Yesterday was Epiphany. And um, <laughs> Epiphany in the Eastern Church is called a theophany. And that's maybe more on point for us because really what it means is a manifestation of God, a manifestation of a deity to human beings. And every culture looks at it a little differently. It's so interesting. In Ireland, it's called Little Christmas. In uh, in Latin American uh, countries, by you know, by and large, it's called Tres Reyes. We talked about that, Three Kings. And I just learned on Friday night from Valerie over here, who actually lived in the Dominican Republic for 15 years. I never knew that, you know. And uh, so, in in the Dominican Republic and Spain and other Latin American countries, it's it's Dia de los Reyes Magos. Did I say that about right? Okay. So it's the Day of the Three Kings, or the Day of the Kings. Not the three kings, but the day of the kings. And every one of these, these uh, whether it's Christmas tide or whether it's Epiphany tide, there are all these customs and things that people do. You know, for Christmas, obviously, there's, there's all the celebration and there's a food and there's a decoration of wreaths and decoration of trees and all of that. But Epiphany gets really interesting and things you probably never knew that people do uh, <laughs> on, on Epiphany. Um, you know, you've got the 12 days of Christmas, and there really are 12 days of Christmas. And that ends on 12th night, which was for us Friday night when we had our celebration. Many cultures have big 12th night celebrations on Epiphany Eve. And Epiphany is actually a bigger deal than Christmas, especially in Hispanic cultures and Latin American cultures. But all these cultures have all these things that they do from church services, of course, but there are parades that have all of the characters and they're mimicking the, 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 the journey of the Magi as they move through. There's something called winter swimming. And especially in, in the, the northern European countries, that's polar ice that they're jumping into. But a priest will bless a cross and throw it into the water. And the point is that you jump into the water and whoever retrieves the cross has good luck for the year. And so and they kiss the cross and everything. But winter swimming, there's something called chalking the door. You know, and this is is this is primarily in European countries and in Scotland. We've, we've got uh, Anne back there. Of course, in Scotland, shocking the door can also mean an eviction notice. So, you know, what can we say about the Scots? But, uh, but shocking the door is basically blessing the house. But you take a piece of blessed chalk and you write a specific formula, either across the lintel of the door or the door itself. And in this case, in this year, it would be a 20 and then a cross and then a letter C, another cross, a letter M, another cross, a letter B, another cross, and then 24. So the 20 and the 24 give you the year. And the middle CMB initials can either be the names of the traditional names of the three kings, which was um, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. Those would be the three names. But probably where it comes through uh, most, uh, most likely is uh, from the Latin, Christus uh, Mansionum Benedicat which would literally mean Christ bless this house. And so it's putting that chalk on the door and, and blessing the house. And in those traditions, especially in medieval Europe where it came from, it meant to ward away evil spirits and to be a sign of hospitality to the holy family in your home. There's also something called star singing where children would dress up as the Magi and they would have a star on a pole and they would all follow the star throughout the neighborhood and sing not necessarily Christmas carols because there are specific epiphany carols that they would sing door to door dressed up as the Magi. Um, in some Latin American countries, there's something called Rosca de Reyes, which are these, these cakes that they bake that are in a 
circle, and they're, they're meant to mimic the crown. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Mimic the crown. And uh, what's that? It's a bread. It's a bread. Like a, like a bandulce, a sweet bread? Yeah? Sweet okay, sweet bread. It's in a circle. And then buried inside the cake is a small baby Jesus, you know, and that is to symbolize hiding, from, hiding the baby Jesus from Herod. Um, but all these wonderful um, traditions. And then um, what uh, Valerie was telling me about is in the Dominican Republic and other countries, the children don't get their gifts until Epiphany. They don't get them on Christmas. They get an Epiphany. And it's the Magi that bring the gifts. And so the Magi take the place of Santa Claus that we have. And the kids will actually put out water and straw for the camels for the Magi. They'll put out mints and sweets for the kings themselves. And then, I'm sorry? Cigars. Cigars? Oh, yeah, even better. Cigars for the kings. Yeah. And, um, and then uh, during the night when the kids are asleep, the parents will put muddy footprints through the house to show that they had come in. Camels. And then yeah, the, camels. the camels and everything. Oh. What a great tradition. These things are wonderful. Uh, and it's so much nicer to have the Magi bringing the gifts in Santa Claus from a, you know, I suppose from a spiritual point of view. But here's all of this repeatable, lovely customs and traditions. And you know, we can probably, you know, say, you know, however silly or superstitious this may seem to all of us, these traditions bind the community together. They give us a common experience, a common practice, a common identity. Now, granted, in, in these, you know, the, some of these nations, the, the, the culture is much more homogeneous. In the United States, I mean, we're so heterogeneous. We're just blown out with so many different cultures. It's hard to have any one culture that really binds us together this way. But these are so important to be able to do this. And this gives us that certainty within the culture. Yes, the larger world still has a mystery and paradox, but these cycles give us something that we can count on emotionally and as people. And they're really, really important. There's great comfort in this certainty of these repeated rituals and events and practices. But just as a child has to grow up, right, move out of the house, lose those rituals and lose that certainty and try, of course, to recreate them in his or her own homes eventually, our society had to grow up as well or at least it did, and we lost those rituals. As we became more and more scientifically based, we lost everything that had to do with mystery, lost what had to do with superstition, lost what had to do with the magic of a season that the children could enjoy, but we as adults no longer did, and our societies moved away from them as well. I suppose this is as it must be. I mean, children, obviously, we all had to grow up, right? We had to grow out of the childhood. We had to grow out of our received beliefs, our received sense of certainty. And then we had to recreate that for ourselves because we can't just live our entire lives off of something that was just given to us. We have to become convinced on our own. We have to create our own personal theology if we're going to have any sort of theology that is going to stand not only the test of time, but the test of all the traumas and the difficulties that are going to beset us as human beings, as adults moving through life. And so we needed to be able to grow up and move out. It's as it must be. So our task becomes trying to find a balance between the comfort of these personal and received beliefs and rituals and that sense of certainty of place within our community. Maybe we can call those practical certainties, right? And the reality of spiritual growth. Non-religious, I'm not talking about religious growth, but spiritual growth. That's not about certainty at all. It's about mystery. True spiritual growth is a moving into mystery, not trying to solve it or resolve it, but to embrace it, to realize that there are things that we can't know, and that's okay. That's true spiritual growth and maturity. To balance that with these cycles, with these rituals, is really a, what we're trying to do, that, that balancing act in life, that dance that we do in life, is what this is all about. That reality of spiritual growth, becoming more and more aware of an unseen world, 
superimposed on the world we see every day, the task that we do every day, but the task within the task is part of that unseen world. And living this paradox of betweenness. To be a human being is to be in between. Got to get used to that. The Hebrew bride is the is the the primary metaphor that the scriptures use of living between, between betrothal and the consummation of the marriage, between heaven and earth, between now and not yet, between, between, between. This is where we live. If we can't get used to that, if we can't embrace that, we'll never be able to live abundantly. And whether we're approaching life secularly or religiously, there is this shared truth that everyone who gets to a position close enough to the truth, sees the same thing. If you want to take a look at your inserts, there's a series of quotes here that I just want to go through and and just listen to the way that this is expressed by these various people. God is not only stranger than we think, but stranger than we can think. That's Richard Rohr. I love that. God is not only stranger than we think, but stranger than we can think. It's the way that we think that is keeping us apart from being able to really see the mystery that God is. Next one. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is in the boredom and pain of it, no less than the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. Wow. Frederick Buchner. What if heaven is not a solving of the mystery, but a deepening of it, an eternalizing of it, a learning to live well with what we'll never fully understand? Okay, that's from yours truly. I'm not putting myself on a par with these others, but I had to get myself in there. (laughs) Mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Did you get that one? Mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Eugene Peterson, he's the author of the message. To avoid mystery is to avoid the only God worthy of worship, honor, and praise. My friend Brennan Manning, I love that guy. To avoid mystery is to avoid the only God worthy of worship, honor, and praise. We must be willing to fail and to appreciate the truth that life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. M. Scott Peck, he was the author of... uh, Ah, just went right out of my head. A different drum and the road less traveled. Thank you. It does not matter whether you have religion or are an agnostic and believe in nothing. You can only appreciate without knowing or understanding the mysteries of life. Jack Cornfield. And finally, a comprehended God is no God at all. John Chrysostom. He goes all the way back to the early centuries of the church. See what they're saying here? Everyone is saying the same thing. If we are focused on trying to resolve the mystery, resolve the contradiction, resolve the paradox, then we are working at odds with life. Life is intrinsically this mystery. Life is only going to be lived abundantly when we can deal with mystery as mystery and just be like children, accepting on the face of it which means that we must have the freedom as adults and the permission to question our received beliefs, our received rituals, to question them, to deconstruct them where necessary. Probably we need to deconstruct them all. We can reconstruct them later if if we need them. But we need the freedom and the permission to reject them as well, to be able to reject the certainty of our received beliefs And if that is not granted, and when is it ever really granted, either by your parents or your church or any institution that you're a part of, right? You got to toe the line. You got to drink the Kool-Aid. If you try to go outside, you're going to hit that brick wall, culturally speaking. So if that permission is not granted, then we must take it anyway for ourselves. Now we're going to have to face the consequences for that. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, if you think I came to bring you calm and tranquility, peace, think again. 
I came to bring you the sword, the sword of division. And he talks about how it's going to start in your own home, those closest to you. We need to be courageous enough to take the permission we need to reject, receive beliefs and to deconstruct them and to question them and then face the consequences that that means in some of our relationships. But this is what it means to grow up. This is what it means to truly take the path of spiritual formation. To follow Jesus is all about this. And so much of Jesus' imagery is focused here. Now, ironically, though the church will fight you tooth and nail, (laughs) giving you permission to do this, right? Our own scriptures don't even touch on this idea of certainty. Our own scriptures don't teach certainty. Take a look at Ecclesiastes 8.17. Then I saw that God has done. Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. And then there's Job 42, and all throughout Job. Read the last third of Job. It is just image after image after image. But this one really puts a, a nail on it. And Job said in answer to the Lord, I see that you are able to do everything and to give effect to all your designs. Who is this who makes dark the purpose of God by words without knowledge? He's talking about himself now. For I have been talking without knowledge about wonders not to be searched out. He's admitting, finally, his own powerlessness. He's admitting that there are just things that he can't know. Marion and I were at the beach. We went to the beach and had a cup of coffee, brought our Starbucks with us on New Year's Day and spent an hour or more there. And I, just just watching, you know, just watching everything that was going on, birds and waves. And as I'm watching the waves, they come up, and there's a couple of kids, and they'd squeal when the waves come up, and then they'd run out as a wave man. They'd squeal and come back to mom. And and Job came to mind, Job 38, where, where the Lord says, you know, who is it, I, who said to the seas, this far you can come and no further. Here, your proud waves stop. I always love that image because it's just... It, There's just this little zone of the beach. They come this far and they stop. Yeah, don't bother me with tidal waves right now. I don't want to hear about that. But it was just amazing. These things that we can't comprehend. You know, who, where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe? These are the questions. This is the mystery that we're talking about. Mature spiritual formation is finding a way to trust, not by creating certainty, but finding a way to trust in the midst of uncertainty. And Jesus, Jesus didn't teach certainty. That's not what he was about. Think about the parables that we talk about all the time, the questions that he would respond to questions. He'd answer a question with a question. He'd answer with a parable or a story. He'd lay down another paradox. Everything that Jesus did in teaching people was to deepen the mystery, not to try to answer rational questions because he knew that was going in the exact wrong direction. The fact that you're asking this question in this rational way tells me that you're on the wrong track. Let's see if we can get you to make a quantum leap over here into a place that really bakes your noodle. Now we have a chance to actually get some work done here. Now Jesus is not uncertain about everything. He is absolutely certain about the Father's love. Even John John on Friday night was talking about sticking the stake in the ground at the point of the Father's love that I've been talking about for years, and he's done that. You know, basically, eventually, you just have to do that in the midst of all the uncertainty. Put a stake in the ground. Now, the church puts it in at the point of law. If that's your cup of tea, okay. But I want to put it at the point of the Father's love, and that's what Jesus does. He is certain about the nature of the Father's love, the allness of it, which then implies the relationship and the identity that he has because of that love. That's his stake in the ground. But is he certain about everything? I want to read you a little bit from Brendan Manning. And this is from Ruthless Trust. But listen to what he says. He says, Abba, Father, Daddy, everything is possible for you. And he's quoting Jesus here. Take this cup away from me. But let it be as you, not I, would have it. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that great prayer. 
Abba, everything is possible for you. Take this cup away from me, but let it be as you, not I, would have it. Jesus' death on Calvary is his greatest act of trust in his Father. Jesus plunges into the darkness of death, not knowing what lies on the other side, confident only that somehow his Abba will vindicate him. Jesus' voluntary disengagement from life is his supreme expression of persevering trust. And it wins for him and every one of us fullness of life, abundance. And his blessed, obstinate, importunate trust ravishes the heart of his Abba. To be like Christ is to be a tradition, is to be a Christian. What did I say, tradition? To be like Christ is to be a Christian. And this is jarring to our traditions because we always think of Jesus as knowing everything, being absolutely certain, having this omnipotent and omniscient mind of God. But Hebrews 2.17 tells us Jesus was in every way human as we are, which means he had limits to his knowledge and understanding as we did. Take a look at Mark 13. But of that day or hour, no one knows. This is Jesus speaking to his followers who have asked him when these events are going to take place because he had given them a picture of the fall of Jerusalem that would occur some 40 years later. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert because you won't know these things. So all you can do is stay aware, stay alert, stay in that place of betweenness, like the Hebrew bride. Jesus is free enough to admit that he doesn't know. How many people are free enough to do that that you know? Well, there's some of us who can't admit that to save their lives. Jesus is free to admit, I don't know, not certain, but trusting Jesus is saying, I don't know, I can't be certain, but I'm still fully in trust. I still trust my Father. Again, coming back to that Mother Teresa story that I tell over and over again, that also came from Ruthless Trust, Brendan Manning, at least the first time I heard it. Someone comes to Mother Teresa and praying for clarity, and she says, no, I'm not going to pray for you for that. Why not? Because clarity is the last thing you're holding on to. Certainty is the last thing you're holding on to and need to let go of. But you seem to have so much clarity, certainty. She laughs. I don't have clarity. I have trust. I will pray that you find trust. All the difference in the world. From the outside in, you can look like you have some certainty. But really what you have is trust. That you will keep putting your foot down and trust there will be something there to hold you up. You know, the prophets and the sages of Israel all throughout the Old Testament times, they understood this. They understood and they wrote about mystery. Now, the people in their fear, they were wavering back and forth. But after Israel was conquered some 400 years before Jesus, and after centuries of foreign occupation, the religious leaders themselves started to fear, started to waver. They started to fear that God had abandoned them. And so in our fear, what do we do? We always crave certainty. When we get fearful, we want something certain to bring us that comfort. And so the Jews turned mystery into law with the idea that they could somehow obey their way back into God's favor. But of course, it doesn't work that way. How could it work that way? We always have God's favor. There's never a moment that we don't. So to think that we can obey our way back into God's favor is, is just you know a defeat on its face. Jesus comes on the scene after a couple of centuries of this new legalism, of this hard legalism in Judaism, and he's trying to restore the mystery. He's trying to restore that 
connection with the people that moves beyond some rational certainty. To be able to start trusting in love that we can't understand is the whole task of Jesus if you really analyze what he's doing. It's kind of like Abraham himself who started the whole ball of wax back when, right? Abraham was given God's promise. He was given a certainty. He was going to be the father of, of nations, so many people, so many descendants that, that would be like sand on the seashore. Right? So he has this certainty in, in God's promise. But decade after decade after decade, he and Sarah do not have a child. And so he starts to waver. That fear sets in. How in the world is this promise going to take place if I don't have an heir, if I don't have a son, if I don't have a child? And he becomes uncertain. And some of you may have known what that feels like, decade after decade, not seeing the promise of what you're looking for. And so in that uncertainty, in that fear, he tries to make something happen. And actually, Sarah is the one who puts the plot into motion for Abraham to impregnate her handmaiden, her service, Hagar. And he does. And then he has a son, Ishmael. And he thinks, okay, it looks like things are back on track now because he made certainty. Isn't it the time that you stop trying to do something that it usually happens, especially when it comes to pregnancy? It's like you're working, you're working, you're working, and then nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden, oh, I don't have to do that anymore, and here's the child. But this is a child of absolute mystery. Yitzhak, Isaac, you know? They were both near 100 years old when this, this boy is born. How in the world does that happen? And so he's plunged back into mystery again by the events of life. But as he has Isaac in, in their home, and Isaac is growing up, the certainty returns, right? More and more certainty until he looks at Isaac now as the object of his certainty. We always want to grab onto something. And then what happens? God tells him to sacrifice his son, to kill the child of promise, to kill the certainty. We have to understand this is metaphor, all right? God would not ask someone to kill their son. But what God is asking, are you willing to let go of this new object of your certainty that is taking away the mystery of life, taking away your ability to see life for what it really is? Abraham is a hero of our faith because he was willing and able to let go of the apparent certainty of this child of promise and to move back into trust in mystery. And this is the pattern for every single person who has ever lived. We are born into trust in mystery as a child. We don't know we're naked, just like Adam and Eve in the garden before the tree, right? We're born into this trust. We accept mystery on its face. Children live in a magical world where every, <laughs> there's no distinction between the imagination in their minds and things that are happening around them. But then the hurts, the traumas, the abandonments, all the things of life that will beset every single one of us create the fear and then the need to create certainty again, to control things again. You know, talk to anyone who's come through ACA, right? That's what it's all about, is trying to control things. But when we move back into the spiritual life and spiritual formation, it's about coming back into trust in this mystery. But this time as an adult, it's voluntary. The child doesn't know what the child is doing, but we do. Because now we're willing to accept our powerlessness in this whole thing. We don't have the control. That's the part we don't like. That's what scares us. But because we fear, we don't trust God's love. And so we, as a church and as a people, we teach scripture and theology as if it is certain, as if it's settled science. When I was uh, coming up in the evangelical church, the Bible was typically called the owner's manual. You know, all you needed was the owner's manual, and then you could solve any problem you wanted with certainty. You could have this thing. And it taught us to look at the Bible and look at the scriptures and look at our faith and, and look at our spirituality, you know, in ways and looking for answers that were never admitted by those who wrote the scripture, those ancients who embraced mystery and realized that we needed to learn to trust within the mystery, a whole different way of looking at life. So what Jesus is saying to us is that we've lost trust simply because we don't know our God. 
We don't know who this father is. We don't know the extent of the father's love. And we will always fear what we don't know, won't we? Don't we always fear the unknown? And if we've lost trust, we've lost everything. Because at that point, we can no longer see the world as perfectly designed for us, as safe enough, safe enough to be able to admit that we don't know things, to experiment, to make mistakes, to live our lives with that kind of abandon. We'll need to make things certain again. Try to see anything that is uncertain and make it certain, and we're going to judge those who don't. This is what happens when we become afraid. This is what happens when we lose our trust because we don't know who our God is. Jesus is trying to show us the Father over and over and over again. And so he's basically saying, yes, use the certainty of your ritual practice. Use the certainty of your communal cycles. Use the certainty of your religion and, your, and, and all the rituals there to create a sense of comfort, to create a safety within the group that will point to and allow you to experience a return to mystery. We need each other for this because it's so scary. But if we create this space like we've tried to do here at The Effect that allows us to safely move into these uncharted waters, we can do it. This is the balance that Jesus is talking about. And he gives us these three steps. First, you need to embrace the good news. <laughs> I'm giving you some good news here. Are you ready to embrace it? That you are loved with a love that you cannot lose. It is here. It self-exists. It existed before you, and it will exist after you. And it is here. And there's nothing you can do to change it. It is safe because of this love to be uncertain. It is safe to be vulnerable and let people see who you really are. It's safe to not know exactly what you're doing and to just show up and do it anyway. And then, when we do, secondly, are you willing to be disturbed? <laughs> are you willing to be disoriented, uncertain, and doubtful? Because if you're not, there won't be any growth. You'll be running back to try to manufacture certainty and the illusion of it over and over again and never really experience what is there in front of you. And third, are you willing then to sell everything you have to let go of everything that you have received as your certainties and just follow mystery? See where it leads. Learn to trust like a child. One more quote from Brendan Manning. He says, ruthless trust is an unerring sense way deep down that beneath the surface agitation, boredom, and insecurity of life, it's going to be all right. Ill winds may blow, more character defects may surface, sickness may visit, and friends will surely die. But a stubborn, irrefutable certainty persists that God is with us and loves us in our struggle to be faithful. A non-rational, absolutely true intuition perdures that there is something unfathomably big in the universe, something that points to someone who is filled with peace and power, love and undreamed of creativity, someone who will inevitably reconcile all things in himself. The splendor of a human heart which trusts that it is loved gives God more pleasure and delight than Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, and all other human glories combined. Why does our trust offer such immense pleasure to God? Because trust is the preeminent expression of love. Thus, it may mean more to God and Jesus when we say, I trust you, than when we say, I love you. Think about that. It means more to God to hear us say, I trust you, than I love you. And I think if you really think about your human relationships, it's the same way, isn't it? To say, I trust you, means that we have gone down the road together. We have experienced something intimately enough to know that we trust. We can say, I love you from here to there. But when we say, I trust you, that's a shared experience. That's something deeper. This life is not about certainty. 
God does not provide that. He's not going to provide that. If he did, it would kill the reason that we're here. It's about trusting in unseen mystery, relishing what we can't know, not fighting it or fearing it. You've probably heard the expression, if you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail, right? But if you're afraid, the whole world looks like law. It has to. Because law, we understand as the delivery device for certainty, the, the contract that we need to be able to control things. And if we're afraid, that's what it looks like to us. But if we can move over and trust that we are loved, then the whole world can look like a thrill ride. You know, one of those roller coaster things that you get on? An adventure, scary enough to keep you guessing and interested and alive, but having learned and trusting that you're going to survive, never so terrifying that you can't just enjoy the ride. That's what we're after here. That's what Jesus is trying to show us. Abundant life is lived in that space, that between space, and only experienced in mystery and uncertainty. Are we willing to go there more and more, step by step, this new year? Let's pray. Father, this is a big difficulty for us. The more unsettled things get around us, the scarier things get. The more that we are going to gravitate in exactly the opposite direction that you're leading. Help us to counter that. Help us to become aware enough to see what we're doing when we're doing it so that we can again choose the mystery that is your presence in our lives. That's what we want to explore. We want to plumb those depths so that we can be equal to all the other tasks and all the difficulties that we face and be positioned to celebrate even the most seemingly insignificant moments because there are no insignificant moments in you. Thank you for this new year, Lord. Thank you for all of the tools that we need to move through it and move closer to you. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.